Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a, bl- of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Pastor Nathan Boyette. Uh, I'm happy to see all of you here this morning. Delighted if you're joining us online. Thank you, Laura, Harrison, and the worship team. It's such a joy to be here worshiping together this morning. One quick announcement before we dive in to, I'm setting my, my, my uh, stopwatch. Uh, sorry, I don't know why I said that. Uh, um, now I'm thinking of a comment that somebody said to me, what does it mean when a preacher puts his watch on the pu- pulpit? Absolutely nothing. So one quick announcement. Uh, I, I'm, tr- I'm going to try to keep to the time. One quick announcement. Uh, we are going to have a town hall meeting in two weeks, November 7th. The church leadership longs for open, honest, clear communication, a time of dialogue, and the congregational meeting that happened in September did not meet those desires that we have. And so we're going to not have any equipped groups during that time, and we're going to have a town hall meeting where the whole session will be here in the sanctuary, available to answer question and answers. Uh, it, uh, we understand that some people don't feel comfortable getting up in front of a whole bunch of other people and asking questions. So if you want to send a question in beforehand, please do email feedback at epanapolis.org with your question, and you will also be able to ask questions in the moment while you're there. So we're looking forward to that opportunity to build and cultivate unity as a church body. Please be in prayer for it. So today we look at Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Uh, This is a part of the ethical instruction of Philippians, where Paul is telling the Philippian church how they are to live in light of the gospel, and it follows after the beautiful Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which pastors Harrison and Drew uh, wonderfully unpacked over the past two weeks. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we might be comforted encouraged, strengthened. Please do that right now. We pray, Holy Spirit, be present. Speak through this message, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our modern period is characterized by speed. We can get almost anything as quickly as we might want it. Countless TV shows and movies are available at the click of a button. We don't even need to wait through commercials anymore. We can just Watch it without any interruption. Amazon Prime will have whatever you buy on your doorstep, in your pocket, in a day or two. The daily news is on our devices quicker than the newspaper is on our doorstep. Fast food, quicker media, emotional encouragement, or a spiritual pick-me-up is available right on this little screen whenever we want. 
in an instantaneous world, the Christian goal of lifelong, enduring obedience seems like an insurmountable obstacle. Walter Hansen, commenting on our passage, says, when the path of obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts, but they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Christ, who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's call to unflagging Christ-like obedience will not be popular in a world that so highly values going fast and so quickly rejects, enduring pain and submitting to authority. But the essential characteristic of the wise person who builds their community on Christ is their consistent obedience to him. That quote challenged me a great deal when I read it as I prepared for this sermon. In verse 12, Paul explains that he is exhorting the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, reverent awe, and he couches that command in the reality that we are living in a crooked and twisted generation. Paul's calling the Christians he's writing to, the community that he's writing to, be a uniquely different community. Paul is saying that because of our sin, all humans are crooked and twisted. We have failed to love God or love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not just people in Philippians Day. It's not just the people out there. It's us here. We have become crooked and twisted because of our sins. If we have believed and trusted in Christ, then the good news is that God has worked his salvation in each one of us, and we are saved. Beloved, children of God, as Paul says here. But that's not the end of the story. Paul then says that we are to joyfully respond. And this command here, the call to joyfully respond, is not just to the individual. It is a corporate call. Paul is writing to the church. Every single one of the yous here are y'alls. Every single one of the commands are written to you, the community. We are all collectively to respond in this manner. One commentator says a call, it's a call for the whole community to rebuild social harmony. It is a call to restore harmony in the church by serving and loving one another. The church community is to be an earthly demonstration of heavenly citizenship. What a beautiful picture. But does anyone else hear this and feel like it's an impossible burden? Do you feel like you're not good enough? not strong enough, not holy enough to live up to this call? I know I certainly do at times. But the engine which powers the wheels of obedience in Philippians is the beautiful picture of Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 has often been recognized as an actual hymn that the early church would sing in praise of Jesus. And it expounds Christ's amazing self-humiliation and his eventual exaltation. The passage we look at today is a direct application of that Christ hymn. We hear the beautiful gospel and what Jesus has done, and we are to joyfully respond in a certain way. The therefore of verse 12 calls us to respond to the awesome, praiseworthy beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
So the idea we're going to unpack today is that our loving Heavenly Father is at work in us for salvation, and so we should joyfully respond. Again, our loving Heavenly Father is at work in us for our salvation, and so we should joyfully respond. And we're going to see three ways that we should joyfully respond. We should respond as grateful actors, we should respond as shining lights, and we should respond as rejoicing sacrifices. The first way we are to joyfully respond to our gracious Father's salvation is by being grateful actors in our salvation. Now, what do I mean by this? The amazing, mysterious reality is that our salvation is God's gracious gift from first to last. It's entirely by grace. It's not because we're special. It's not because we earned it. It's not because we did anything. It is God who is at work in us for our salvation. Solely by his good pleasure and grace are we saved. However, that salvation does not call us into passive existence. We are freed from slavery to sin, but we are freed for something. We are freed to live in the manner in which God always intended us to live. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we are saved if we believe and trust in that. But that's not the end of the story. We are called to return to what God originally intended us to be, holy, righteous, loving humans. In verse 12, Paul calls the Philippians to continue in obedience to the Lord. We see Paul's great concern with human activity. Though he boldly, proudly, on every page of his letters, proclaims salvation by God's gracious free gift, he also calls every single one of his recipients of his letters, to respond in obedience. Humans are not to be passive once saved, but to be actors participating in and alongside God in the fruit of their salvation. The word work here has connotations of produce, create, work out your salvation, produce more of your salvation in your life. The entire New Testament biblical witness about sanctification is that as God's beloved children, We are to be active in the process of our sanctification. What is sanctification? It's the gracious gift of God where he renews and transforms us to be more and more like Jesus, restoring us to the image of God so that we die to sin and live a more holy life. It's a process, a process where we partner with God In verse 13, Paul reminds them that it is God who is at work in you, willing and working for his good pleasure. Verse 13 is abundantly clear. It is God who saves us. But verse 12 is also clear. We must actively participate in our salvation. Now, this might seem like a contradiction. It is God who is at work in our salvation, or is it we who are at work in our salvation? But rather than a contradiction, we should see it as a beautiful paradox. The paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. John Murray commenting on this passage says, God works and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's already having worked in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we can be that all of that is because God has worked in our lives. We, our work, our active participation in our sanctification is the fruit of God having first worked in us. In verse 14, Paul says that they are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
The do all things of verse 14 is directly tied to obedience and working out our salvation. Those are the all things we are to be doing. As we act in our salvation by God's grace, we are to live lives not characterized by grumbling and complaining. Rather, they should be filled with gratitude and seeking of unity. One commentator says that verse 14 is a challenge to desist from attitudes and words that tear apart the social fabric of the community, because none of the biblical writers are ever concerned only with the individual. Salvation has communal implications. In light of Christ's beautiful, sacrificial, life-giving death, we are called to gratefully, actively participate in our own salvation characterized by life-transformative, joyful, grateful obedience that will overflow then into our interactions here as a church community. No illustration can really capture how God works in us for our salvation while we are also simultaneously working, but as I was thinking and meditating on this passage, I thought of when I, I'm still a father of young kids, but when I was a father of even younger kids, when my Two boys especially were three and five, and I would be doing a project around my house, building a garden bed box, painting a room, screwing or nailing something in, and they'd be like, Daddy, Daddy, I want to help. And did I say, no, how can you possibly hammer in a nail? No, I didn't say that. I'm like, come here and help me. And then as I held the hammer, they would put their hand as well on it, and we would hammer that nail in together. Did they hammer that nail in? No, they could barely lift the hammer, but we were doing it together. In a similar manner, God, the Holy Spirit, is working in us like a parent guiding a child as they first learn to hammer in a nail. God guides us and works in us even as we also actively grow in obedience and grace. Does this call to grateful, joy-filled act of obedience seem burdensome to you? If it does, then you might be viewing how to respond to the gospel incorrectly. There are often two incorrect ways that we respond to the gospel, legalism and license. One, legalism is still trying to earn our salvation by our good works. The second, license is living by cheap grace, thinking that once we are saved, we can just continue to live however we want with no consequences. Both are equally wrong. We are called to joyfully respond to the gospel in active, grateful obedience. We don't obey out of bitter hearts, still seeking to earn our place with God. It's already ours. We're already his beloved children, and we can't lose that. Nor do we not act at all, ignoring God's call to die to sin and live a holy life. That would be like spitting in our Savior Jesus' face. God has graciously saved us, and we respond to the gospel with joyful, active obedience, confession of ongoing sin, repentance and turning away from that sin, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, daily cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, daily seeking to love those around us in obedience to what God has called us to do. We're called to desist from the attitudes and words that tear apart the social fabric of our church community and the world. Because the call to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is a corporate call, we should be concerned with those in the pews next to us. Are they growing in their love for the Lord? Am I doing anything to stop them from growing in their love for the Lord? That should be a concern of ours. As I think and reflect personally about my own response to this, I have failed in so many ways. 
but I'm grateful for how God has worked in my life to produce grateful, active obedience to him. As a freshman in college, I came to a fresh, deeper realization of God's gracious love for me. It consumed me, and I remember going from a shy, depressed, suicidal in high school individual to someone who is filled with joy, walking around campus, smiling all the time, going up to random strangers in the dining hall, sitting down with them, and just saying, hey, can I get to know you? And not feeling awkward about that at all. It was like a light switch had been turned. And that could only have happened by God's grace and His Holy Spirit working in my life. You see, I had seen who God was and what He did for me, and I couldn't help but tell other people about it. I'm sure you all have felt this at various times in your lives. You feel, you experience, you understand God's abundant love and grace, and then you cannot help but respond in joy and gratitude by seeking to obey Him, by seeking to kill the sin in your lives and help other people to know this great God that you know. I'm sure it would be great to sit down and hear all the different stories and ways that you have experienced this. The second way that we are to joyfully respond to our Heavenly Father's gracious salvation is by being shining lights in this world. This is the second application of the Christ hymn. If Christ humiliated himself for our salvation, then we are to be shining lights in our community and world. In verse 15, the word that is used to indicate purpose, aim, goal. Paul explains that their grateful act of obedience is for the goal that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is a reminder that as God's beloved, adopted children, the Philippian church are to be witnesses in this world, which still rejects and rebels against their creator and king. They don't have a choice to be a witness or not. We don't have a choice to be a witness or not. We are a witness. What we do have a choice is whether we can be a witness that attracts people or repels people. That's what we can choose to be, because people know that we're Christians. People judge our God and our Savior by our actions and our character. No matter what we want, we are a witness. We get to choose whether we be a witness that brings people to our God or pushes them away. In verse 16, Paul goes on to elaborate that one of the key ways the Philippians are to be shining lights is by holding fast to the word of life. What does Paul mean by word of life? Word often indicates the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. This word of life is both about Jesus' life, his works, his deeds, his sacrifice, and this word of life indicates the life generated by Jesus' salvation in us the eternal life that each one of us has. Some commentators noted that holding fast to the word of life is another way to say what Paul originally said in Philippians 1.27, where he wrote, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The call to hold fast to the word of life is a call for our lives to be transformed more and more into Christ-like life, a life characterized by repentance trust in the gospel, rejecting sin, and pursuing love of God and love of neighbor is holding fast to the word of life. This life focused on Jesus and the gospel is why we shine as lights in the world. We don't shine as lights in the world because we are unique and special, because we're successful, 
because we're so handsome or beautiful or praiseworthy. We shine as lights in the world because we have Jesus in us, because we have Jesus to give to the world. He is the light and the one we want to point people to. There's an intentional contrast here between the grumbling and disputing and the shining as lights. Hansen, the commentator, says, complaining turns off the light of the church in the world. Proclaiming the word of life shines the light of Christ into the darkness of the world. Complaining and grumbling, disunity, turns off the light of Christ in us. How discouraging that is and how much we should long to truly be a community that shines the light of Christ out into the world. In view of the wonderful salvation explained in Philippians 2, we are to joyfully become shining lights in the world which attract people to our great God. This is an image used throughout the Bible. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called his followers to be light and salt. Salt is essential to life. It's highly beneficial in numerous ways. You can't actually live without salt. And so should Christians also be something that brings flourishing, health, goodness to the world. We need to be salt, but we also need to be light. Light is a basic biblical image for goodness, holiness, knowledge, grace, God's revelation, the gospel. All of these are indicated often when the biblical writers use the word light. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be the light of the world, and a light should not be hidden away, but should be put out for all to see. So we are called, as Jesus' followers, to be shining lights that attract people to our God. Our lives should be so characterized and shaped by the word of life of the gospel that people recognize it. They might not be able to put their finger on it until we tell them. They might not be able to recognize and think, oh, that person's a Christian, because a lot of people around us have negative stereotypes of Christians now but they should think to themselves, that person is different. That person is unique. That person is characterized by amazing love, humility, gentleness. And then when we have an opportunity to talk to them, they should connect the dots. It's because that person knows Jesus. It's because that person knows God. But we are not only called to be passive shining lights. We are called to be an active witness. We are called to say with words the wonderful message of the gospel to people. There's a wonderful book written recently by Rebecca Pippert called Stay Salt. You may be familiar with an earlier work that she wrote almost 40 years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. This is an updated version that's more relevant in our day and age, but she identifies three reasons why we often don't actively share the gospel. We feel inadequate, we think we don't know enough, and we lack confidence. And I've certainly felt all of those at times, and I'm sure you have. If we feel inadequate, we need to remember that it's not because we are adequate that we should share the gospel. It's because God is adequate, and God is the one who works in people's hearts to draw them to himself. God promises to be with you as you share the gospel. God promises to work in people's hearts and lives. The second, we don't think we know enough. The amazing thing is, is that all that is necessary is a simple gospel presentation, an explanation that we are sin, that we have sinned and are separated from God, and that God still loves us and wants to draw us back to himself, that Jesus died in our place so that we might have life, and if we trust in him, we are saved. People have been saved and become Christians with that simple explanation. You don't need to be a seminary-educated, Ph.D., 
Student, all you need to do is understand what God has done in your life. And then you need to be humble enough when somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, to say, I don't know. Let's go find out the answer together. Let's explore this together. How attractive is that when people do that to you, right? We lack confidence uh, in order to overcome this hurdle. We should pray. Pray for the people in our lives. Pray for our own ability, and we should practice. Practice talking to people. Practice talking about the gospel to yourself, to your loved ones. Christians need the gospel too. If, as an earlier commentator noted, complaining and disputing turns off the light of the church in the world, then when those who do not yet know Jesus come here into our church family, are they attracted or are they repelled? When people interact with you, do they see something that they want to understand more of or do they want to run for the hills? After all, Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our very lives, our actions, our generosity, our mercy, and yes, our very words are to be shining lights for the gospel to the world around us. The final way that we are to joyfully respond to our loving Father is by being rejoicing sacrifices. Rejoicing sacrifices. On the surface, that seems contradictory. How can we rejoice at being sacrificed? And we might instantly have an adverse reaction to that terminology. Who wants to be a willing, rejoicing sacrifice? But listen to what Paul says in our passage. In the second part of verse 16, Paul reminds them that he has labored in their lives for the sake of the gospel and their spiritual benefit, their salvation. Paul speaks of being proud or boasting here of what God has produced in them, but he's not boasting of what he has done. He's boasting of what God has done in their lives, producing the fruit. He is so thankful and proud of what God has done in their lives. And in verse 17, he goes on and explains that even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul's words here, poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, draws from both Jewish and Greek religious sacrificial rituals where a cup of wine would be poured out as an offering as part of the religious ritual. Paul's explaining that even if his life is given up in death and martyrdom for the sake of others' salvation, for the sake of bringing more people to praise his great God, then he's going to rejoice. This should not surprise us after we just looked at the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which praises Jesus for his willingness to sacrifice and humiliate himself to the point of death for our sake. That's our God. That's our Savior. Verse 18, Paul calls the Philippians to a similar joy-filled life and sacrificial service where he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In verses 16 to 17, there are three pictures of Paul's life, a runner, a laborer, and a sacrifice. The first two require hard work, effort, but the final involves an ultimate end, his death, the giving up of his very life, but all three are illustrations of suffering for the sake of a goal. Suffering for the sake, and the goal here is the gospel, for the sake of others to know our God. Paul is not complaining or resentful here. He says, even if this happens, then I will rejoice. Paul's response again and again in his letters to suffering is rejoicing. 
Paul's language of verses 16 to 17 intentionally echo the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If Christ joyfully sacrificed himself, then his followers also should joyfully sacrifice for others. God's word repeatedly shows us that not only is Jesus the way to God, which he ultimately preeminently is, he's the only way to God, but Jesus is also the way of God. We are to emulate him, follow him, and be like him which, of course, we cannot do in our own strength and effort, but the fruit of the Spirit will produce that in us. We find our salvation in life in Jesus, but through His Spirit, we are empowered to live more and more like Him as we take part in God's mission. So, our final response to the Christ hymn is to be rejoicing sacrifices for others in their salvation. We are to give up our rights so that others might know God better and grow in their faith. As many of you know, I was a missionary in China right after college, and while I was there, I read this wonderful little book by a missionary to China named Mabel Williamson. She was a missionary in the 19th century, uh, over 100 years before I was, and the book is called Have I No Rights? In it, she explains the difference between this two really wonderful Chinese sayings, eating bitterness and eating loss. The first, eating bitterness is suffering hardship, and the second, eating loss is suffering the willing infringement of your rights for something. In the book, she talks about a missionary who said when he went to China, he found it quite easy to eat the bitter. It was easy to go through hardship. He was there for a goal, and it was okay when things were difficult. But the missionary said, this young man said, it was really difficult to eat loss. It was really difficult to willingly give up his own rights. Williamson writes, the missionary was right. On the mission field, it is not the enduring of hardships, the lack of comforts, and the roughness of life that make the missionary cringe and falter. It is something far less romantic and far more real. It's something that will hit you right down where you live. The missionary has to give up having his own way. He has to give up having any rights. He has, in the words of Jesus, to deny himself. He has to give up himself. Her words are not merely for missionaries over there. Her words are for us right here, for all of us. We are all Christians called to the same attitude and mindset, a willingness to give up our rights for the sake of others. I hope you see the connections throughout these main points. If you're not a grateful actor working alongside through the Holy Spirit in your salvation, then you will not want to be a rejoicing sacrifice And if you are not a rejoicing sacrifice, then you will not become a shining light because you will be too concerned with your own rights, your own needs, your own comfort. If we grumble and dispute, then how could we ever joyfully, willingly give up our rights so that others can come to know the Lord better? I'm not just talking about people out there. We are working in each other's lives to help one another grow in our love for the Lord. Each of us as followers of Jesus are called to willingly sacrifice in some way for the sake of others, to sacrifice so that a loved one might know God better. Our spouses, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our co-workers, friends, bosses, a random person at the grocery store who is having a bad day and says something angry to you. We are to live sacrificial lives on their behalf because Christ sacrificed himself 
for us. What rights do you cling to too closely? How do you identify that? I, I find it quite hard sometimes. But in different situations, we need to examine what's going on in our heart and our lives. When you don't get your way, when someone tells you no, when you feel anxious, when you feel stress, when someone doesn't recognize your contribution, when your finances are bad, when your children are not successful or are simply again and again disobedient, when you've had another fight with someone that you love, examine your feelings in those moments. Examine your thoughts. What rights do you feel are being attacked? How do you feel wronged? What things are you unwilling to give, into, give up because you want it? It's yours. Examine yourself in those moments and then apply the gospel to it. Apply the message of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done. Here in Philippians 2, Paul immediately follows that beautiful hymn praising Christ's self-humbling death and his glorious exaltation with a command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we see the wonder and amazement of who Jesus is and what he has done, we cannot help but respond. We are amazingly, wonderfully saved. Each one of you, if you have believed in Jesus, you are a beloved child of God. That's not going to be taken away. But God longs for so much more for each one of us. He wants us to grow in our salvation. He wants us to put away that sin and grow in holiness. He longs for that. We are children of God if we've placed our trust in him. And that wonderful truth should prompt us to joyfully respond because we are already saved and beloved by him. In a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And in it, it reminds us, we'll sing, Thou my great father, and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasures thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. We have a great, awesome Father who sacrificed to the uttermost for us, a Savior, a big brother who sacrificed to the uttermost for us. The victory is won. Our treasure is waiting. We can live this life in his grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to come and save us when we were twisted and crooked, far from you, wanted nothing to do with you. You came and you saved us. You died in our place. You humiliated yourself, Lord Jesus, so that we could be bought away from sin, freed from sin, and made beloved, adopted daughters and sons of you. The we thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that we can joyfully respond, that we can be grateful, active participants in our salvation, participating with you through the Holy Spirit in obedience, that we can be shining lights in this world and rejoicing sacrifices. We find this so difficult at times to do, Lord God. Strengthen us, encourage us, comfort us when we fail, knowing that our sins are forgiven and your favor is upon us. Pray this in Jesus' name.